Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Reese Show, where we interview experts to help you understand where technology is headed and how it will impact society as a whole and also your daily life. Thanks so much for learning with us and enjoy the episode. Today, I chat with Josh Bongard and Michael Levin, who are the co-directors of this really crazy center called the Institute for Computationally Designed Organisms. And this is part of our series on how we're going to rewrite all of biology in the biosphere. And Michael and Josh are maybe the most futuristic about it of all of my conversations. One idea that really stuck with me that you'll learn about today is this idea of morphology space, which is that there's lots of physical possibilities for how animals and robots can exist. There's, you know, cats and pine trees. There's like robots, like drones that are around. But we've really only explored a small part of morphology design space thus far. Right now, everything around us is just from natural selection, from Earth, from 4 billion years. But in the next 100 plus years, we're going to create a bunch of crazy different organisms (laughs) that exist, organisms and robots all around us, Um, not just from natural selection, but from AI and other things. And so we're going to live in this new kind of men in black reality where everything around us is not just humans and the plants and animals we're used to, but also are all these computationally designed organisms. And that will be a crazy future. Hope uh, So we chat about that and many other things. Hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, listeners. My name is Reese Lindmark, and I'm the founder of Root, and welcome to The Reese Show. And today, I'm excited to chat with two amazing folks. Uh, we have Josh Bongard and Michael Levin, and they're these co-directors of this really cool new institute, the Institute for Computationally Designed Organisms, which is, you may have guessed it, a research center for organisms that are computationally designed. So we're going to chat a lot about that today. Josh and Michael, thanks for being on the show and welcome. Thanks Thanks for for having us, Reese. Woohoo! Your thank yous were roughly at the same time, which is perfect. And by the way, this is one of my first um, co- uh, this is a three-person interview, so this will be kind of fun to see us all kind of navigate this. You all are kind of two halves of the same brain, slash maybe 1.5 brains each for three brains total. I'm not sure how to do the math, but um, so we'll, we'll explore that today. Before we dive into some of those computationally designed organisms, I guess I want to ask each of you, like, you know, you each have this weird perspective of both the computational side, but also the biology side, and maybe starting with Josh, what is like the through line that ties all of your work together? So all of the work that goes on in my lab falls under this heading of AI-driven design. If we turn over some of the increasingly exotic creatures and systems and buildings and bridges and materials that our society is designing, it's getting harder and harder for a human engineer to figure out how to do it. So let's see what an AI comes up with. Got it. Cool. So it's like, let's point the AI at the design and have them make it. You know, I'm not very good at designing stuff, so let's have the AI do it. And then, Michael, for you, what's the through line that ties all of your work together? Yeah, basically um, everything that we do in my group, uh, and some of which is bench biology and some of which is theory and, and so on, uh, is f- fundamentally it's all about understanding how how it happens that some some physical things in the universe have minds. So, so I'm really interested in intelligence. I want to know how scaling works in terms of competency, how, how small subunits like cells or other things, you know, we're all bags of cells, right? We have this unified perspective, but we're really a collection of, of various cells, some of which are neurons. And, and so how does that happen and what kind of bodies can exist? What kind of minds can inhabit those bodies? Um, all those, those kinds of questions. Interesting. And so it's like Josh is the like designing uh, side. And then Michael, it sounds like yours is almost more of like an under, like almost like an understanding side where it's like, how does the mind work or something? Is that, is that correct? 
I mean, that's certainly part of it. Uh, the thing is that uh, what keeps us honest uh, in terms of um, how do we know whether any of our theories are any good is that our outputs are at least supposed to be uh, advances in regenerative medicine. Cool. So our right. So so my lab is trying to understand the collective intelligence of cells, for example. And if we knew what we were doing, we would have good theories about how to make these cells do what we want them to do. So that would be the that would be the equivalent of the design, you know, sort of side, right? Got it. Cool. Yeah, I like the um, and for me as person, I you know was at the MIT Media Lab for a bit, but I never really like fit in there in the sense that I was like it's it's too like academic for me. And so it's like for me when I hear more like applied research center, I get more excited. Like just the applied side, I get more excited about. So the, the other kind of funny thing with your collaboration with the two of you is that you're collaborating in this way where you got like kind of a biologist, Michael, and then kind of a computer science, you know, Josh, like, how did you all start to collaborate together? And what has that looked like? Mike, do you want to tell our, our origin story? Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, so, so I've, uh, you know, I've been, I've been following Josh's work for, for since, since the beginning. I thought it was, I thought it was amazing. And I thought it was exactly what we needed in biology. And, um, I, I, I think our first actual, you know, sort of encounter was um, I put on I put on this little conference um, and uh, and invited you know four or five people that I thought were you know really uh, doing breakthrough things that that I thought could 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 be um, could be uh, could lead to something big and and so that's that's the first time we met in person but I've been following the work for you know forever and I obviously knew about Mike's work uh, as well and. You know, as a, as a roboticist and, and someone who works in the AI space, we're obviously always bio-inspired, right? Trying to borrow ideas from nature to make smarter robots and AI. And as I learned more about Mike's work and looked at, you know, the work that they were doing, it wasn't necessarily that they were viewing organisms as, you know, raw materials to learn hypotheses. It was also treating them as machines or agents in and of their own right, creating these crazy, you know, animals and organisms that had never existed on Earth before. It didn't look that different from what roboticists and researchers and AI were trying to do. And, and the more I learned about Mike's work, this distinction between biology and computer science started to blur. And that's just deadlines become blurrier the further we've collaborated together. Yeah, I love that. It's funny. It's like, well, A, I think so much of it is just these like weird little terms, like the phrasing, the framing at the beginning has all kinds of downstream effects. Where it's like just framing, you know, the biological units as agents or machines makes you think about them in a different way instead of like thinking of it as some kind of like come like an organism or something. And then also it makes me think, yeah, I mean, it's like, this underlying perspective of, as we've learned about obviously DNA, you know, like 50, you know, 75 years ago. And it's like, okay, what are, yeah, everything is just kind of computationally driven information processors. And so like, um, you can look at it from one perspective or the other, but that's kind of what, what uh, it's, it's turtles all the way down. Um, so, so thinking about specifically uh, what, you know, the work that you all are doing now, which is, and, and to kind of frame it both for the audience and for you all, I kind of think of this like the goal for the audience is to help them understand kind of how synthetic biology might impact their daily life and also society as a whole in the coming decades. And so with that in mind, um, could one of you two kind of, maybe Michael, do you just want to explain what is a xenobot and what is this institution for computationally designed organisms? Yeah. Um, so, so maybe let's, let's take a step back and, and start with what, what you were just saying about how it's going to impact people's lives, right? So one, one thing to understand is that 
pretty much every problem in medicine with perhaps the, the exception of infectious disease. So we're talking about birth defects. We're talking about traumatic injuries or so losing limbs, um, cancer, uh, degenerative disease, aging. All of these things would go away and be, be completely resolvable if we knew the answer to the following question. How do collections of cells decide what they're going to build? Right? Because if we could convince cells to build new organs, all of this stuff would be solved. So what keeps, so, so for people, you know, listening to this, right, you, you, you're all going to get older, we're all going to experience various, oh, no. uh, you know, various issues. Yeah, and unfortunately, <laughs> um, and what keeps us from really radical advances in regenerative medicine uh, is, is, is really fundamental knowledge gaps about this, about this question, right? And it's, it's kind of widely believed and, and, and biologists um, perpetuate this by, you know, our, our developmental biology textbooks, let's say, make it sound like all of this is solved, right? You have this beautiful textbooks where everything it looks like that by paying attention to the genetics and to the molecular biology that we've kind of have a handle on this stuff, right? And, I, I, and we can dig into this, but, but I'm here to tell you that we don't have a handle on it. There are major, major, like, like major questions that are completely um, sorry, deep, deep areas of deep ignorance. And uh, what we need to understand is, is not just the, the hardware of life or the, uh, the materials of which it's made and how, the, you know, how the little, all the little um, proteins and pathways and everything else to act, but actually how do they know what to do, the informational side of things. And so what I hope this institute is going to do is use the medium of synthetic morphology, meaning we're not just going to look at the few examples that life has given us as these evolved like standards model species, which is what all developmental biology has been doing. Um, we're going to make new ones because we all know that by making new thing, by, by making things from, 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 from scratch, you, you learn, you, you know, you learn about what's going on and how much you understand it. And we're really going to crack the, what, what I think of as the software of life, right? The, the really important addition to under, in addition to understanding how all the mechanisms work, how do, how do the algorithms work? How do any of these things know what to do, right? What's the information? What's the computation? And then what are the interventions? How do we get it to do what we want it to do? So, so that's, that's what I hope this institute will do. Yeah. And let me, let me pause you for a second. Or, it, that's a great overview. And I love the kind of, it's kind of an interesting thing where it's like, yeah, we have in our bodies, everything is degenerating. And it's like, oh, what if we use these induced pluripotent stem cells or whatever to like make a new retina or something? It's like, let's just like rebuild the things, um, these collections of cells to like build new things for ourselves. And it's so interesting. I think that like part of, I think a really powerful perspective that you both bring here is this idea that we have, it's kind of funny because yeah, we have like the DNA, which builds the protein. And then the protein goes and like, does something, but how does it know what to do? You know, like, wh where is it? Like, what is that? Like, like, I think that there's something in this kind of like information processing piece, which is really interesting. And as you said there, Michael, it's like, how do we, trying to understand our, our, our bodies is so complicated because they kind of evolved over, you know, 4 billion years or whatever, versus just like, let's like treat this in a lab and just do some synthetic morphology. Um, so that all kind of makes sense to me. Is there, and then maybe, you know, Josh, how, how does the Xenobot kind of fit into that vision of um you know synthetic morphology so as you were just saying right it's it's comfortable to sort of say well let's just decide the genes encode this part of the body and that part of the body and we'll write this nice textbook and okay i feel better it's it's very intuitive very simple you know there's some details to figure out and as mike mentioned it is definitely not that so what do we do if we want to achieve you know these these goals that mike has mentioned uh how do we design? How do we intervene? Where do we push? Where do we press? Where do we twist? 
th- this is something that that I and my students have thought about for a long time. It's you need to bring in one of the most recent tools that humans have invented, this thing called AI, which maybe, and this is still uh, still not proved, that maybe it can figure out some of these interventions better. Maybe it can build from cells and tissues uh, and blood vessels and genes and, and bioelectric networks in the way that humans built with concrete and metal and plastics and you know ceramics and electronics in the 20th century. We're moving into this space where the materials are extremely powerful. Um, they are competent, as Mike can, can tell you. They do things on their own, and we're not quite sure what they will do under what conditions. They are not dead materials like steel and plastic and electronics that will just sit there until we push them into modules and get them to do what they want. This is living and lively material and building stuff from that. I, I think we're going to need some help. Cool. I mean, I mean, one one of the one of the funny things that uh, we, you know a lot of people don't think about is, I mean, developmental biology has some beautiful, beautiful work over over you know many many decades, right? But if but if Josh were to call me up and he would say, um, yeah, you know, uh, you're you're a developmental biologist. I want a robot that grows its leg back. Can you can you uh, point me to uh, something in this textbook that's going to help me out with this? There's literally nothing. There is there is almost nothing in a developmental biology textbook that I could hand over to someone and say the, the, here the, this you can use this to make something that does something. That's you know to me that that's a major gap here, right? We should be our our um our our goal should be to to pull out these general engineering principles where somebody could say, oh, I see, so I should do this, this, and this, and then I'll have. Instead, we hand you know the best we can do is hand over a list of genes. And he would say, "Well, what? Well, where's the magic? Is it is it these ones? I'm like, nah, not really. It really kind of doesn't matter what what any of them are. And and then what do we have, right? So so that's where I think there's a there's a major opportunity here is to actually understand, get the information that's needed to to cross fertilize these these fields. Yeah, cool. Yeah, it's like as you said, it's like the yeah." Hey, I want to build this bigger, like, and we know the genes are very simple in some ways. It's like, you know, blue eye, brown eye, you can do like some simple things like that. But then when it gets to these more complex kind of physical things, it's like, yeah, we have no idea. So talking about a Xenobot for a second, and for our listeners, it's kind of, just to give you the TLDR here, it's kind of a, it's it's these beautiful little um, creatures uh, where you say, okay, we want this little creature to, um, it's made of a frog, sc- frog skin cells and heart cells. And um, you say, hey, let's like design this little creature. It's very small. It has a bunch of these little cells. You make it in the kind of the wet lab and then it can go around and, like do stuff like push, um, like push the plastic into the, into like a, a, a little circle or like do, do, you know, like move a little thing somewhere, kind of like run around. Is that, and it's, and it's weird because it's this little thing that kind of looks like an organism, but it's not, it's like, it's designed by, you know, Michael and Josh and really by the AI. And so is that, is it my, is that right? Is that what a Xenobot is? I kind of get it right. I, I mean, f- physically, that's what it is. It's a new proto-organism made from skin cells or, or, or skin and, and muscle cells. But um, it, the, the, I, I think, I think the, most, the more significant um, piece of this is this. If I, if I were to ask you, what do, what do the skin cells of a frog embryo want to do? Right. Usually you'll get you'll get two answers. Either that's a stupid question. Nothing. They don't want to do anything or. Well, what they want to do is is to be a nice two dimensional outer layer on a tadpole and keep out the bacteria, because that's what evolution has has evolved them for. Right. What what the xenobots are, are an experimental answer to this question that tells us that both of those are wrong. What what happens is if you if you take those cells 
and you we don't add anything. We don't add new genes. We don't edit their genome. We don't add um, nanomaterials. We don't do any any of this weird stuff. What we do is we liberate them from the instructive influence of the other cells. And we really ask them, okay, what do you want to do? You're off by yourself. You're in this novel environment. What do you want to do? And it turns out that actually what they what they will actually do when they're not forced into this 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 kind of boring two dimensional you know surfacey life, they actually want to be this other organism that runs around and does interesting things. And then it turns out from and Josh will you know explain all this. We can use AI to actually manipulate the, the manipulate that process and get them to do slightly other things, right? So we can start to play the role of you know evolution at how many you know millions of years to to figure out how to get the other cells to sort of uh, uh, beat them into submission to be skin. But now we're starting to, we, we want to pull back. So the idea is let's pull back and, and say, what is the default that they would like to do? And this is the default. It's amazing. Nobody would have guessed this, right? And then, and then say, okay, now can we, do, uh, can we do the other thing, which is to figure out how to get them to do something else. So what they, what, what they really are, are a technology that uh, is starting to show us how to really understand what's, what's behind the, the, this collective intelligence of cells and, and how, to, um, you know, how to manipulate it, how to communicate with it, how to study it. That, that's what I think they really are. Cool. And, and Josh, before you talk about the, um, like how to like make them do certain things, I just love that perspective, Michael. Like, okay, it's like, we, it, this is really, you all are just like, um, you know, social justice activists for, for skin cells. You know, it's like free the cells. For, they've been under the poor cells. They've been, oh, and they're being mean. And they actually could be, a, they need to be liberated, you know? <laughs> I love it. I haven't heard that take on it yet. That's great. I love I, it. I guess liberate the skin cells. Um, so, some slogans in the lab tomorrow. Exactly. You got to spread the meme. Um, um, so, so Josh, now that we have these skin cells that actually are liberated and and they're their own people now, which is or their own, you know, um, what? So, if you want to get them, I know, like some of the, what I've read about xenobots. Am I saying it right, xenobots? I heard, or how do you say it? I, I mean, I I say xeno, xenobot, but either either way is is okay. What do you say, Josh? Do you say xeno or xeno? Well, I, I like saying both because there's actually two meanings of the xeno and xenobot, right? There's there's the fact that these are made from xenopus lavis. But Zeno is also Zeno or Zeno is also the Greek cognate of, you know, stranger, newcomer, mm-hmm. alien, you know, you're, xenophobia uh, kind of xenophobia, yeah. exactly. Okay. Xeno, okay. Xenomorphs from the alien movies. Okay. You know, okay. So I think, you know, those two, it's good to pronounce it the two different ways to remind ourselves that there's at least two different meanings hidden in the, okay. the name okay. itself. Good, good, good. So either or. So with these Xenobots, how I, I know that like you can get them to like, push like plastic together or like tell me josh how do you get them to like do like to get them to do things yeah yeah so okay we can ask questions about what can we get xenobots to do we can also ask the question of what you know what are xenobots what are they capable of what kinds Mm -hmm. of forms can they take on what can they do we can if we're going to ask the question of what they can do we can break that down into two categories what can they do that's useful for people so if we're going to focus on the bot part of Xenobot, that's why we make robots or that's why humans make any machines is they do something kind of on their own that that's helpful directly or indirectly for people. So we mentioned in a couple of the papers, we just threw out some ideas that maybe someday Xenobots will collect microplastics from the ocean or chase down cancer cells in arteries. Those applications, they may arrive. It's not going to be anytime soon. This is a brand new technology. This is like computers in the late 1940s. No one predicted Tinder or Google Maps in the 1940s. It's, it's impossible to say. So we can view the Xenobots as you know, a brand new engineering tool. 
And it's a tool that was made by a tool. It was made by AI, which is itself a tool. What Mike has been mentioning, I think, is the, the much deeper implication of Xenobots is we can ask the AI to design Xenobots that are new scientific tools. They're like a new telescope or a new microscope that we might be able to pull new understanding of biology, mind, life out of Xenobots more easily than we can from natural organisms. If you want a xenobot that chases down microplastics, you can ask questions like, how big do they have to be? What shape do they have to be? How many have to be together? How do they have to cooperate? You can ask the same thing. If you want to learn new biology, what should that xenobot look like to be more conceptually transparent, to more easily give up its secrets compared to naturally evolved organisms? And I think going forward, that's something that that the Institute is going to really focus on. It's going to be extremely exciting. Cool. You I go, mean, Michael. it's 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 very interesting. Uh, um, you know what what Josh was was just saying because these uh, standard model systems, right? It, they they lull you into a false sense of security because you see a frog egg and 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 it, it's pretty reliable. It's pretty good at at becoming a, a tadpole every single time. And you say, yeah, that's obvious. I have, right? What else would it do? You know, we get it. The tadpole. You know, uh, oak, acorns make oak trees and and frog eggs make frogs. Right? It's got to be. It's got to be. But the xenobots have exactly the same genome as as a standard frog, and yet they're not tadpoles; they're they're xenobots. And so, what it allows you to do is to question, right? It, it it allows you to question, like, how much do I really know? What could I have really predicted? And the reality is, you know, I, I don't know if uh, if this is if this is common knowledge, but you know, um, given a genome, you can't actually tell anything about the shape of the organism, right? You can, you can cheat and compare it to other genomes that you know what they are, and then you can sort of figure it out. But if you didn't know, you couldn't figure it out from the genome, nor could you figure it out. If I shrunk you down to a tiny size and put you inside an embryo, and you sort of looked around at what was going on, all the noise, the cells running around, all the stuff going on, if you didn't even, if you didn't already know what embryonic development was and the fact that it was going to be reliable, there's, there's no way in hell you would say, oh, I get it. This whole thing is going to make the same thing every single time and it's going to be a fish. You would, you would never know that, right, at that level of – and so, you know, you get lulled into this kind of like feeling that we know what's going on but just because standard, standard development is so reliable. And that's why, that's why I think using these uh, synthetic, synthetic models is so, so instructive. Yeah, that's cool. It's kind of like a different version of like simplify. It reminds me a bit of some of the work that's happening with um, artificial intelligence safety and these transformer models where what they're doing is they're simplifying the, and they're trying to do mechanistic interpretability where they really look deep inside the, the system. And they say, okay, what are each of these different neurons actually like, like what are these little like um, circuits doing? What's the attention layer doing? And they're, and they're actually able to look at the, and they, instead of looking, you know, GPT-3 has 96 um, layers and they're looking at zero, one and two layer systems. It's like making it very, very simple getting kind of the mechanistic interpretability that you all are doing and then being like, okay, now we can actually see what these things do and we, we combine them into more complex things later. But we shouldn't necessarily just take this super complex thing that looks simple from a standard model perspective, but is actually more complex. Is there a, um, so let me understand one thing about Xenobots. So you get these cells. So hmm, what's the way to say this? Is there uh, you know, when you look at like pictures for Xenobot on the internet or whatever, you see this little, you know, this little Xenobot which has the skin cells and has the heart cells. Is is the thing that makes it go, is, is that like, 
Um, if I wanted it to do something different, do I change? I, it sounds like you're not changing the genome. Is all you're doing changing the like arrangement of cells in like three dimensional space? Or is what you're doing, like doing some of these kind of biochemical, bioelectrical signaling? Like, how do you make it, how do we, will we make these things do different things? So, so, so ultimately, of course, there will be, will, you, you could, on top of this, you could put everything. You could put um, synthetic biology circuits. We're going to, of course, do bioelectric signaling. We're going to do all that. For, for, for now, the thing to, to understand, and there's, there's two kinds of Xenobots. There's the kind that is uh, a, a bit of, um, it has some, some, it's got skin and then it's got some muscle. And what they do is, and they're sculpted to have these little legs and they sort of walk along, right? That's, that's one kind. There's the other kind, which is just skin no muscle at all. And what they do is they have these little hairs called cilia that, that, that beat and they, and they basically row and they swim, you know, they swim through the water like a marine larva would. So, so the, so the thing to keep in mind is that baseline, like most of the heavy lifting is so far is done by the cells themselves. Like they are already super competent in getting together with others. I mean, just think about it. We take these skin cells, we put them in a, in a separate environment, what could they have done? Well, they could have crawled away from each other and just like been independent. They could have formed a flat monolayer the way that cell culture does. They could have died. They could have, there's a million things they could have done. Instead, what they do is they get together and they form this thing and they repurpose their hardware, meaning these, these cilia and, and some other stuff. They repurpose that towards new functionality. Um, we didn't have to tell them to do that, right? They, this is what, what Josh was saying before about this is a, uh, it's uh it's 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 an agential material, meaning that you're not working with passive components. You're working with something that has an agenda. They like cells like being next to other cells. They they like forming um, sheets that are polarized in a particular way, right? And then everything we're going to do is on top of that. Then then whatever you're going to do, let's say sculpt them the way that um, uh, you know uh, D- Doug Blackiston does is when when he sculpts these these uh, cuts away certain things. So what's happening here is that. We, we work exactly the same way that evolution works because evolution has to also work on top of this material. Evolution doesn't just get to, get to pick all of the micro-level details. It's already dealing with cells that, that nat- natively want to do certain things. They're going to do certain things. And all you can do is come up with ways to modify. It's, it's, it's guided self-assembly. All you're going to do is come up with ways to, to, to manipulate them, hopefully, into doing something else. But, but you're not on a blank canvas. You're on this, like... Um, you know, you're dealing with this with this very rich medium that that in the absence of your clever manipulations is going to do whatever it wants to do, right? With it, you know, with kind of reminds me of like a toddler or something where it's like, okay, you have a toddler. The toddler wants to eat. It wants to run around. It wants to scream. It's like you could, if you want to, you could try to get the toddler to like um, sit and like code something for a little bit. But like probably the toddler's just gonna like run around and be. So it's like it's an agential material. And so in some ways, yeah, it sounds like you kind of just like shove the stuff together and see like, oh, what is this agential material? What, and then, and that's how, that's kind of that reflective perspective of long-term, we'll try to make them helpful for humans, but short-term, or I mean, we'll, we'll do both in, in both times. Or like in short-term, we're going to try to just understand what it wants, you know? And, and so that is, um, I love the term agential material there. So and thinking I, about- you mentioned, you, go, mentioned Josh, the, you mentioned this metaphor about the toddler, you know, this, we say in evolutionary robotics, the field that I work at in, when you evolve or you, you get an AI to design a robot, it's like a teenager. It'll, it'll do what you want it to do, but in retrospect, n- absolutely not the way you wanted it to do it. And th- this exists all over AI, right? It's called perverse instantiation. 
And there's hilarious examples, you know, autocorrect fails and, you know, tragic examples. There's been several human pedestrians killed by autonomous cars so far. And so, you know, under all of all of AI and robotics, this huge global infrastructure and economic sectors that we are, you know, calling into being on top of this technology, it's all sitting on top of technology, which will often perversely instantiate what you want it to do. This is extremely, extremely dangerous. Along come Mike and Doug Blackest and Xenobots, which are different. They are materials that, that aren't stupid. If you try and put them together, they fall apart or fall apart hilariously or dangerously, like when you're building with metals and plastics and electronics and deep networks and transformers. They they self-organize. They, they do things that maybe you weren't expecting, but I don't know that they're necessarily always bad, right? We are biological systems. They are biological systems. There's general things that we both like to have happen. Hold your shape. You know, don't don't harm anything nearby. Don't suddenly go out of control. Um, so I think it's it's going to be interesting to see how or whether perverse instantiation crops up in xenobots and biobots and synthetic biology in general. Yeah. I think yeah. there's ways that it might offer us a path out of this fundamental impasse that currently exists in AI and robotics. That's a really interesting perspective. Yeah. Cause it's like, if you have so much of the issue with all of our, if we think about, you know, this, this frame of like meta existential risk, where we have these existential risks for humanity, whether it's climate change or whether it's um, artificial intelligence and that becoming um, too intense and perverse instantiations there, or like, you know, nuclear security. And we have, um, you know, we went from zero to 50,000 um, nuclear warheads in the world or whatever. Or if we think about um, biotechnology and the cost to, you know, sequence and synthesize and, and create these kind of bio, um, bio weapons or bio things. It's like all of those issues are things of like these exponential curves. While while biology, as you're saying it, it has some of these kind of um, homeostatic or kind of um, self-chilling um, mechanisms into it. So it's like, hey, let's just like use these things that are more of a fit with the way that we want to be instead of doing these things that are kind of can get on exponentials too intensely or something. Is that is that right? I, I, I mean, I'm not a biologist, but that yeah. as a as a technologist, that's exactly it, right? Yeah. Nuclear warheads, all, all these technologies we've developed, they don't have the benefit of biological cells, which have had 3.5 billion years to figure out that you shouldn't explode, you should balance <laughs> exponential, you know, you should balance exponential processes against one another, yeah. dynamic equilibrium, yeah, exactly. stability, homeostasis, exactly. That that exists throughout biology, and we can just, you know. That that's maybe a more a safer foundation to build technology on top of. Yeah, cool, interesting. Yeah, I like that. Is there so so maybe taking a um, a step back and for both myself and for the listeners, if we imagine this, um, you know, for me, I'm writing this book on what information wants, which is you know the history of genes creating the the biosphere and the tree of life, and then kind of memes creating this tree of ideas and the technosphere, both you know factories but also religions and things like that. And now we're in this weird place where we have the ability both for humans and these new kind of artificial intelligences to kind of rewrite the biosphere um, in these different ways. And whether it's like creating new xenobots or whether it's changing our DNA, how do you, and maybe starting with Michael, how do you think about how the biosphere is going to change in the next couple decades? Um, is it going to be, you know, AI designed biosphere? Is that what we're going towards? Or how do you think about that? I think that uh, the, the, 
biggest change that's going to come is uh, which which I think is going to blow up other things in a way that we can, we haven't even you know begun to dealt with with all the revolutions that we've had so far is that this distinction between basically a lot of a lot of terms that are currently thought of as binary so um, you know a, a machine organism right robot living thing designed evolved you know all of these things which seemed like these were good terms that pick out natural kinds that were like truly different all of that was basically just uh technological limitations and now that those limitations are starting to be lifted we're starting to see that those things are actually not uh sharp categories at all in fact for many of them it's unclear whether there is something deep to it to be uh, to be dug out and you and you know what what is that term really going to do for us um, at all and so what we're going to see in the biosphere I think is a is a basically uh, you know and 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 uh, I've I've got a, um, a beautiful uh, kind of illustration of this that we're we're using in some of the some of the papers where. Darwin had this phrase, you know, endless forms, most beautiful, right? So he's looking out into the natural world and he's saying, wow, look at all the variety here, right? The actual space of possible beings is so astronomical that that all of that stuff is a tiny dot, okay? All the natural things we've seen so far is a tiny dot. And what's coming is every possible combination of evolved material, designed material, and software that you can imagine. One of the cool things about life is that it's high, highly interoperable. So cells from different species will live together fine. That you can, you can, um, uh, cells will work with, uh, with, with electrodes and with weird materials. They'll live on crazy scaffolds. And so what we're going to see is, you know, and already you're seeing some of this, cyborgs, hybrids, um, uh, novel organisms that have different materials at, at every level from, from the molecular, from the DNA to the cells, to the tissues, mix and match. Every combination that you can imagine is, is, is going to be created. And this is going to be, this is going to be very profound because the whole notion of biosphere, right? We already have examples of parts of the biosphere modifying other parts of the biosphere, right? That's not new. You know, animals do this to each other. There's, there's, uh, they, they, they change their niche. They change, they, they deform each other, both on the lifespan of a single individual. And of course, evolutionarily, we do it all the time through our activities, even before the technical technological revolutions. Uh, but this is going to go, this is going to go exponential. And so every possible way of being an agent with with diverse with highly diverse intelligences um diverse um capabilities different different sensors senses different you know these things are going to live in different spaces so all of that all of that is going to be part of our biosphere we are going to have to learn to relate to creatures that uh don't share any obvious phylogenetic uh, position relative to us right so we know what it's like to you know you look at something you say yeah that kind of looks like a fish i know what fish are what fish are I, I know what to do with this we are there are going to be things where you you'll be surrounded by stuff in your home outside everywhere where you cannot tell what to do with it based on what it looks like and how it got here right whether it was an evolved or designed and that's you know that 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 makes sense right we should have better ways of judging other beings other than what they look like and how they got here and we are going to have to develop everything from frameworks to uh, sort of gauge the uh, uh, intellectual, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, level of, of whatever you're, you're, you're interacting with. And, of course, a new ethics for dealing with, with creatures where, again, you can't just uh, put a line somewhere and say, OK, those are insects. Do whatever you want. These are vertebrates. You know, you've got to be nice to them. Like all of that stuff is going to just um, have, have a major meltdown. We're going to have to re, re, reimagine all of that. 
Cool. Yeah, I love that overview. Josh, what do you think about the, um, how do you think we're going to, if at all, rewrite the biosphere in the, the coming couple decades? So I think it's it's exactly what Mike said, is is these increasingly exotic creatures. And as Mike said, you know, it's everything you can possibly imagine is coming, but it's it's more than that. It's also the things that we can't imagine. So there are, you know, safe, useful, um, safe and useful machines slash creatures that are deserving of our empathy that we can't imagine. Where are they, right? It would be great if we could bring, call them into being. They're safe. They're useful. They We learn something from them. They enrich our lives. But where in the morpho space, where in the space of all possible things does it lie? That from a technology point of view, that's the question. How do we how do we tell an AI to go find it? Because if we can't imagine it, you're, you got to catch 22. You can't go looking. So what we can do is take this very small point in the space of all possible beings, that is stuff we know about, which now includes xenobots, and we can tell an AI to say, see all this stuff over here, head in the other direction, get as far into the morpho space, bring us back the most alien creatures you can find. If you can build with frog cells, genes, you know, bioelectrics, chemicals, you know, artificial materials, that's going to be really interesting. If we want to understand the space of all possible beings, then we need to have a way to navigate through that space and have the AI bring us back, you know, interesting, useful instances. And so, you know, what, what lies out there, it's, it's going to be really exciting to see. Yeah, that is, um, I like both of those things. And just to reflect a little bit, what I'm hearing is, yeah, that we have, and I love yeah, the framing. And I, I know like Daniel Dennett has a similar framing where it's like, okay, you have, um, you can imagine the whole space of possibilities where, you know, things are, there are some things that are um, logically possible, like um, a horse with wings or whatever. And then there are things that are um, biologically possible. It's like oh, a horse with wings might work. And there's stuff like historically possible. Like, does that actually exist in the world? Does like the Pegasus exist? And eh, not really or whatever. And so you can kind of imagine. And then, and then all these things have to somehow, if a being needs to exist, it needs to kind of, you know, the survival of the, um, you know, just rereading the selfish gene. It's like, it's a survival of the stable. And it's like this, this new thing in the morpho space has to exist for at least some period of time for us to like label it as a thing. And then that thing needs to kind of be stable and exist through time and then obviously capture energy or at least keep its kind of informational state or whatever. And so as we, um, what we've had thus far is just like this random, uh, not a random walk, but this kind of energetic walk through design space. And now we're getting into the space where it's like, okay, uh, it's kind of scary when you talk about it like that, but it's, it's very exciting. It's like, okay. And I'm imagine, it makes me also think of um, uh, the Spotify Every Noise at Once map, which looks at these you know 6,000 different genres. And you can, um, and some of the stuff is normal. It's like, oh, here's Katy Perry. But then you could also be like, let's go as far this way as possible. And before long, you're listening to like Flemish metal, like uh, 8-bit music. And you're like, what even is this? Who's creating this? And so I think what that looks like in the morphosphere will be really interesting. And it'll be really interesting to see that kind of, as you all said, like, you know, maybe a hundred years from now or two, who knows how long we'll just exist at multi scales, you know, with these new things that were, didn't really exist before, but are kind of, um, are possible in the design space. So that, <laughs> that sounds cool and interesting. Any other reflections on that before you move into this final well, question? You mentioned it's scary and, you know, anything that's new is scary, but I think, you know, we are, we are learning of course, that there, we can make things, uh, or things can evolve that are dangerous to us. 
If we want to understand the difference between dangerous and safe biological systems, for example, we need to move through morphospace. We don't need to necessarily call all the things we find into being outside of a Petri dish or outside of a computer simulation. But what does it mean in general for a living system to be dangerous for humans or to be safe and helpful for humans? We All we can do is reason from the, the admittedly limited number of organisms that currently exist or have existed. So I think a lot of the, you know, a lot of the, the health challenges we're wrestling with, climate change, questions, energy questions. We need to understand this better. In the space of all possible things and systems as they relate to us, what does it mean in general for something to be dangerous or safe and useful? Yeah, Michael, yeah. any other final um, reflections here? Yeah, well, just to add to that, uh, again, on the, addressing this, this, the scary uh, part of this, one of the reasons that uh, people often find this, this expansion of the possible scary is this baseline assumption that uh, there are things that are natural and good. And then there are, and then there are a bunch of these crazy scientists who are going to muck it all up by inventing something, you know, something that's not natural and that's going to, you know, be scary. Right. And so I just want to kind of remind ourselves that what we see around us in the biosphere is not the, the result of any of a process that had any of our values. In other words, what you're seeing is the result of a, of a, of a constrained random walk, right. Through, of, through evolution, that basically, what does evolution optimize? It doesn't optimize happiness or intelligence or any of the things that we like. It, it optimizes biomass. That's it. If there's some way of staying alive and being observable in the future, that's what you got. And so I just think we need to, we need to realize when we get scared about um, making things that are not natural, we ought to be able to do better than that, we, right? Better than a random walk. We ought to be able to improve on things. And in fact, I'll go one step further and I'll say we have a moral duty to improve on things because I think, I think there are people who say, you know, don't do stuff, you know, leave it natural. I, to, to, to me, this is, this, is, this is complete moral cowardice because it assumes that, and I don't think that view is, you know, particularly viable anymore, that there is some, some, way, some way of saying that everything we see around us is sort of perfect. It's the way it's supposed to be, whatever that is. And then let's not muck it up. I, I think we look around at the suffering around us, both human and animal, right? In, incredible I mean, environmental challenges, um, uh, medical. I mean, this, the, the emails I get every week are just unbelievable from people with medical challenges. I mean, it's horrible. And right. And, uh, and, and this, this view that it's all natural, let's just leave it like this, is completely untenable from an ethical point of view. We need to be able to do better than blind evolutionary search. We, ju- we just have to. So that's, yeah. that's, that's my take. No, I like that. I like, well, A, it makes me think of, yeah, it's funny because like if, when I say that, I'm like, oh, a little bit worried about something. Like I have hyper, I'm like very open to experience. Like I live in San Francisco. I'm in like burning, you know, like some of my friends are like all that. Like I'm, yeah, I have you two on my podcast. And so it's like, wait, when I'm like triggered or whatever, that's how you know you're out. But as you said, it's like, hey, we need to kind of check in and see what is safe and what is dangerous within the morpho space. And also totally agree with you, Michael, to say that like, yeah, I mean, it's like we have the lowest, uh, a really low bar that was set. It's like all that we've optimized for is biomass. Like we could do better. Like let's have, let's put our value. And it makes me think of like this wild animal initiative, which looks at the 10 trillion animals um, in the wild. It's like, okay, is that, how should we help them or not help them? If so, you know, it's like, how should we, can we make a world that actually has our values kind of baked into it in this different way? Um, so that's an exciting future. So as a kind of a, a wrap question, um, in the last kind of five or so minutes here, I guess, A, I, I kind of want to ask, you know, both of you a version of this, but, you know, I think that, and especially, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, seeing the world as this kind of 
you know, complex systems and, and, and through the lens of complexity and informational processing and that kind of thing. That's kind of a very, it's kind of a weird lens. It's kind of complicated, but then once you start to like taste it, it gets, it's very delightful and, and juicy, but it's kind of hard to get into it. So maybe starting with Michael, how, how did you kind of get into this lens or what would you call this complexity kind of informational processing lens? And do you have any like advice for listeners on how to like, un- like go deeper down that rabbit hole? Yeah, and it's it's hard to do it in a couple of minutes. If anybody's really interested, I drop me an email, and you know, and I'll kind of uh, point you along. the The biggest thing uh, that I think we need to do is there's um there's a phenomenon that I call teleophobia, and it's this idea that uh, people are people are and and we're taught this in 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 classes. We're taught to be terrified to overestimate the amount of agency in whatever system, right? So the goal is let's treat everything like the simplest possible machine we can. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, woe be you if, uh, if you attribute something, you know, m- more to it. The pro- I think that's fundamentally wrong because it's just, as, it's just as bad to underestimate as it is to overestimate. Okay. And, and, and a lot of people won't agree with that. So that's probably that's controversial. But, but that's, what, that's, that's what fuels the work that I do, which is that, you know, and then that we, we all do together, is that um, you need to get it right. Not just not just head blindly for the lowest, you know, for the lowest possible level of description, because because that's where you think, you know, you're, you're some, some a kind of reductionist. I mean, not really, because you don't really want to talk about quantum foam all day. You, you like chemistry, you know, and, and so and so we'll just do everything in terms of chemistry. Right. This is like, like that's that's what people like. But um, I think. Uh, yeah, I think I think you need to realize that that you could get you could be wrong in either direction. And what's important is to get the right level, the, the optimal level of agency for a given system, not just, you know, not just uh, the, the, to assume it's low. That that cool. that opens up all sorts of uh, avenues. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, Josh, do you have any uh, other advice for kind of interdisciplinary thinkers on the podcast for how they kind of traverse their their career and in, in yeah. these or other adjacent fields? I mean, when I was a student starting to learn about all these various fields that we've kind of touched on, the, the thing that over the years I've absorbed from it is that it's it's an inherently optimistic way of viewing the universe because it asks the question, what is possible? And often it's in a literal scientific engineering point of view. What, what's possible with frog tissue in the case of the xenobots, right? And then you get to these bigger, bigger questions of what's possible in morphospace, the space of all possible organisms, machines. And then it leads you when you start to think about those machines interacting with us and our infrastructure and our planet and the planets in the solar system, then it then you start coming to, you know, social and philosophical questions. What is possible? Like Mike said, there's huge amounts of suffering. Can we do things differently? So you're coming to, you know, a, a social and philosophical deep question, a, an important question, but you're coming at it via science and engineering. You're grounded as you approach these big questions. It's not just political platitudes and let's make a great planet, let's stop climate change, but I have no idea how. So I think there's something fundamentally optimistic about AI, robotics, synthetic biology, you know, interdisciplinary work that's, that's really trying to ask this question, what's possible, and get those options out there and then let us as a society decide where, where do we want to go? What do we want to try? Beautiful. Yeah. I like both those. It's um, make sure you get the right level of agency in a system and, and even using the term, just like 
the agentic material, you know, it's like how agentic is it? That seems great. And then also, yeah, the what is possible reminds me of like a David Deutsch perspective here of like sustainability is not necessarily good. You know, you don't just want something to just continue as is, you know, it's like, yo, what can we actually make good in the world? You know, like, let's be, let's go and, and make something possible and exciting. Um, so with that, thank you both for coming on the show. For for listeners, if you want to, A, just check out Zeno, just like Google Xenobots, Z, and I'll put all of this in the show notes, Z E N O. B-O-T-S. And then also on Twitter, they both have great Twitters. Um, Michael is Dr. Michael Levin on Twitter. And Josh is Dr. Josh on Twitter. Both doctors. So that's good. Um, And I'm not a doctor. Uh, uh, So thank you again, both for coming. um, And thank you listeners. And we'll work towards this new Morpho space. That will be exciting. That sounds fun. Thanks. Thank you, Reese. Thanks very much. Thanks so much for listening today. If you like the show, please give us a five-star podcast review or subscribe on YouTube. And if you'd like to chat about this episode with a community of amazing, smart, ambitious, divergent people, come on by and join our Discord. You can find it at root.co. That's R-O-O-T-E dot co. And then finally, if you'd like to contribute to these ideas being shared more widely in society, you can support the podcast production team at patreon.com slash Lindmark. That's patreon.com slash R-H-Y-S-L-I-N-D-M-A-R-K. Thank you so much.